0: Prince of Peace there will be no end to the increase in his government for the peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteous from them on and forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this Amen so, how many of you in here have heard that passage before? Pretty much everybody, right? So, uh, which, which portion of you specifically heard? Yeah, usually starting in, in verse 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders... And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end of the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. That's that's usually what people have heard. They may not have actually heard the context to it. So the context to it is that this is a message... Um, going out um, to those who live in the land of, of Galilee and to the Gentiles uh, of the Gal, uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. So it's talking about an area, if we were to look at it, it's uh, today it's northern Israel and uh, pushing over into the Jordan area. So um, actually I can show you on a map. I'll give you... Some, uh, some, let's see here let's go to maps close that close that, so if we were to look at it on a map, this area in the north what you see here is the land of Israel um, and I'm going to pull it down a little bit so of course this down here is Egypt and the Nile Delta this is the coastal range, which um, for much of uh, Israel's uh, tenure in the land was an area of conflict and conquest. And that's where the, the Philistines had their areas right in here, the, the five cities of the Philistines. And then this is the hill country. And so this is pretty much the, the uh, what we would consider the Jews which are the remnant of the tribe of Judea, of Judah, which was down in this part right here through the hill country. Um, But up in this northern territory up here, that was conquered early on by the Assyrians uh, before the remnant of Judah went into captivity. That's the area it's talking about. This is the Sea of Galilee. This is um, uh, Naphtali, Zebulun. This is the area of Galilee, And from here, this is the northern part called Dan. that's the headwaters of the Jordan River, which flows into the Sea of Galilee. So when it's talking about um, (coughs) this statement here, it says, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali with contempt, but later he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So that would have been This area right here, he's saying it was treated with contempt, and sure enough it was. It was trampled under by uh, the Assyrians, it was an area that was uh, considered in in the northern territory, um, never had much uh, repute, uh, never had much honor, and the reason why is because Dan was originally, the tribe of Dan was originally supposed to be down here on the coastal plain. But they went to that part of the country. If you read about the story in, in uh, Joshua and Judges, this is the area that was uh, given to them by God. They didn't go in because the Philistines were there. They didn't have, uh, they didn't believe what God had said that was their gift to them. They didn't have faith. And as a result of their lack of faith and thinking that they had to win it by their might, not by the might of God, they ended up going north. And this area was an area of dishonor. Even in the time of the divided kingdom, when the kingdom divided into the southern kingdom, Judah, and the northern kingdom, Israel, and we understand that in Dan they actually sent up, set up a temple or uh, a center of worship. It wasn't the temple. Um, But it still did not ever have the stature and and honor that those who followed um, God's word and promise had in the south. So when we think about the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Judah, what what do you know about the tribe of Judah? Who was was one of the warriors in the tribe of Judah? David. Well, David was, certainly. He was born in Bethlehem, right? So Bethlehem is down around in here. And so this is, and he grew up, so you'll see there's kind of a, a, a darker brown region right through here. That's because this is a very rugged hill country. And on this side of the hill country, they would have uh, a lot more agriculture. <coughs> but right up here, on this side, just right as you kind of crest that, is the area where they had a lot of wheat and barley. In fact, the, the word Bethlehem or Bethlehem, as we say, we pronounce the H, uh, T-H, um, means house of bread. And, you know, Jesus said he was the bread of life, right? The the bread basket of the faithful was right here in Bethlehem. And it was Caleb. Remember, there were a couple of uh, the spies of the 12 tribes that were sent out that actually brought back a report so said, yep, there's giants in the lands, but we can do it because God is for us. That was Joshua and Caleb. Caleb, when they came into the land, they crossed the Jordan River. This is the Jordan River running right through there. Um, when they came into the land, um, it was Caleb who asked specifically for this hill country. He said, I want to conquer that hill country. That was the early formation of Judah right so this area from the very beginning was an area of faith that that those that went in to conquer and hold that country were believing in the promise of God because they were certainly outnumbered the whole of Israel was outnumbered by the people's in the lands that were already there when they went in but they went and they were you know there were giants there were big folk in that part of the hill country. And uh, and yet they went in based on the promise of God and made that their home. And yet in the north, we understand that they were the rebels. They actually created a civil war after David and his son Solomon. And Solomon's son Rehoboam, when, uh, when Rehoboam made uh, his um, government uh, established and he listened to bad counsel and he wanted to put certain areas in conscripted labor in order to serve his kingdom program, not God's kingdom program. And as a result there was a division, a civil war that occurred and the northern country became ruled by a guy named Jeroboam and he went up to Dan. Right. So this area was an area of the rebels. Um, it was an area of those that went in, like the tribe of Dan and the descendants of the tribe of Dan, who went in because up here, life was easier. They were at the headwaters of the Jordan. Whereas down here, they had to depend on the promise of God in order to hold that country, in order to um, populate it and become fruitful and multiply. Right? So when we read, <coughs> he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So this area, even though there were uh, faithful Jewish families living there, or faithful Hebrew families, one of which was Joseph, who even though he was from Bethlehem down here, chose to set up his, uh, right here, if you look at this range right here, and I could blow it up if you're interested, um, that's where he settled. That's called the, the Nazarite Ridge, Nazarene Ridge. And there's a ridge there, and there's a city called Nazareth. It was just a small little village. Um, today it's more of a city. And that's where he set up um, his business, and that's where he raised his family. And, of course, we know, we, read, we heard about the story of Joseph last week in the morning service where um, Joseph... Uh, he was betrothed, which is the same thing as being married. It actually, uh, betrothal is a marriage contract without consummation of the marriage, and that the marriage uh, ceremony, the civil part, occurs later. But the theological joining of two into one occurs um, in that betrothal. <clears throat> and he found that his wife was, uh, Mary, was with child and it wasn't his, right? So he was thinking secretly about divorcing her because he was an honorable man and he didn't want to dishonor uh, Mary and bring shame to her. And he wanted to do what Moses said, that because of the hardness of of men's hearts, divorce was um, allowed and that that was essential for the woman because she had no way of surviving apart from having a certificate of divorce So a lesser man could have had her killed. A lesser man could have had her killed, could have, could have, had, her killed. Could have had her stoned to death, yeah. correct. Um, because but he loved her and didn't want to do that. He, for her. he did love her. And we don't know what he was thinking when he uh, was, you know, in his heart thinking, well, I'll, I'll give her a certificate of divorce. Um, whether he was concerned about the purity of the bloodline, or he was concerned about his reputation, or he was concerned about a lot of things, right? So Joseph was mulling all of this over. We don't know what all of the concern was, but we know that he had kind of set it settled in his heart. It's like, well, I, I guess the right thing to do is to um, give her a certificate of divorcement so that she can continue on with her life, um, and um, I'll do it in a way that that um, allows her the least amount of shame, right? He would do it secretly. Um, So that was what Joseph purposed. And then what happened? The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, no, 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 this child that Mary has is not by another man. It's by the Holy Spirit of God. But this is, in fact, God with us, Emmanuel, which we read about Emmanuel, in Isaiah I suppose when an angel comes you know it sums up (laughs) yes uh, but Joseph actually heard what the angel said and he believed he was of the tribe of Judah and even though he was displaced into a place of shame here in Nazareth um He recognized the right thing to do was to believe God and do that which the world says is nuts, right? The world says, this is not right. You know, this woman cheated on you, uh, put her away, stoned her to death, all those different kinds of things. And he chose to believe. He believed the angel. And of course, we know the story that uh, there was a census and they were required to go to their hometown and... Joseph ended up taking Mary down to Bethlehem, and it was when they arrived in Bethlehem at his ancestral home that they, because of the census, there was no place for them, so they ended up uh, taking up a place, a room in the stable, and that's where Jesus was born, right? And that's exactly what we read here. God will make it glorious. This area, this land of the Gentiles, this place of where the nations had come in and trumped the nations the gentiles that word is in greek is ethnos where we get ethnic from and it's often translated nations or gentiles so when you see the word nations it's talking about all those that were not of the promise that was given to abraham and our direct descendants from abraham to isaac to jacob and then the 12 sons of jacob You understand that there was a promise that came down through that line, and everybody else outside of that line would bend the nations. And so that's what it's talking about this Galilee of the nations, an area of where you would not expect God to be working. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. What happened on Christmas? A great light. Those who lived in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So it's going to be a celebration, right? A cheer to God who's doing this mighty work. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. So the, it's speaking in two different contexts there. One is like a beast of burden where they put on the oxen a yoke and then they could attach things to it, kind of like my little lawn tractor and I have a way of attaching things to it. Well, that's what they put on the beast of burden, what it's called, a beast of burden. They put a heavy yoke on its shoulders and that's what it was uh, designated for in life. Was a life of carrying burden, and then the other is a staff on their shoulders, and that the way that the uh, the shepherd um, kept his sheep in line was he'd put out his staff and the sheep would pass under that staff, and some of them he'd swat in the butt, and some of them he'd yank and pull, and you know he's he's uh, taking these dumb animals and he's using uh, a staff of correction, right? And but he also has a rod of protection, right The rod wasn't used on the sheep. The staff was used on the sheep, but the rod was, was for defense. And, or, uh, and we read about um, that this is to break that burden, to remove that staff, the rod of their oppressors at the bat, like the rod of their oppressors at the Battle of Midian. So the Battle of Midian, Midian uh, is this area right here <coughs> and What happened was, when the people came into the land, they had to cross along this side of the Dead Sea and enter in. And uh, the peoples in this area, Edom in the south, and um, Moab in the north, uh, oppressed those people. And in fact, in the time of the judges, there were frequent raids from this uh, media plateau here into the area that the people had come in to settle. So these were ancient enemies right the ancient enemy the rod of their oppressor their ancient enemy right for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire in other words there's going to be no more war you're not going to have to worry about that invasion from the foreigner for a child will be born to us this is This is the the because clause. The reason all of that is true is because of this child. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. So what does that tell us? A child will be born. A son will be given. That means he will be like us. He'll be flesh and blood. Right? The government will rest on his shoulders. So when you look at, and this, this government that rests on his shoulders is the administration of God's kingdom. That's the government that's being talked about here. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So we understand this, uh, and, and these names get unpacked in different contexts. And I, I won't unpack them all for you today, other than I'll point out Prince of Peace. And this whole idea that he is the uh, reigning king. When it says the government will rest on his shoulders, it's talking about the administration of God's kingdom. Who administers God's kingdom? His king. And this is the son of God. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. This is an eternal kingdom. And that was exactly the promise that was given to David. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Now, when I read that, and the reason I chose that this morning is because that's actually very relevant to what's going on in our study in Ephesians. It's not only relevant because this is Christmas season, and we often read that passage about the birth of Christ at Christmas. Right? That's where I said, how many have heard this passage? Well, that's usually because it gets read this time of year. Um, But we should be reading that all year long because this is telling us something about what God is doing. And uh, I guess before I I depart from there, I'll pick up the last sentence. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Who does it? God does it. It isn't the schemes of men that pull this off. It's what God intends from the beginning. It's his power, his might, his wisdom, his um, foreknowledge that brings all of this about. So when we read in Ephesians (coughs) chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in the heavenlies, in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the blood. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things in the earth. That is that very word the government rest upon his shoulders. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So we went through and we unpacked that and we said, what is this about? And, uh, and the reason I'm going to continue to read it over and over and over again is because what you're going to find is that that passage, that, that is a single sentence in Paul's writing, even though we break it up into multiple sentences because it's quite complex, captures a whole lot of theology. It doesn't capture all theology, but it captures uh, in a single sentence a major piece of our Christian doctrine that which we understand about who God is, that he's gracious, that he's kind, that he's purposeful. Right? And that because he is that, because he is full of grace, because he has kind intentions toward us, and he is purposeful, he chose us from before the foundation of the world. And that it was for a purpose. It was for good works. Right? That's what we're going to see. As we... Uh, i'll take you through my outline i realize that's a long introduction Um, you know i i picked the thesis verse organizationally when i looked at ephesians as uh, chapter 4 verse 1 because it's important to understand who we are in christ but that should impact us in the way that we live to just know something does you nothing right there are a lot of people that graduate from college that are really smart, head knowledge, but I end up not hiring them because they're not going to be able to work for me, right? Um, and what what I'm saying is is that what we know, what we understand, what we believe should impact how we live, and that's why I picked this verse. Tim corrected me. He said, "Well, yeah, we need to um, walk in a manner worthy of this calling." Pardon. No, he didn't correct me. He just picked you another know. verse. Now I'm correct. Which is chapter 5, verse 1, which is, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And that, how do we do that? How do we walk in a manner worthy? Well, we do it through imitation. Right? So in order to imitate, we have to know. We have to know who our God is. But more than that, we actually have to be joined to him in a very fundamental way. Right? And that joining in a fundamental way, that unity with Christ, being in Christ, is what we read about in chapter 2 as we move through. And uh, I'll give you my, my notes here. Um, we talked about salvation. We talked about uh, that doxology. We talked about the prayer uh, that um, we would know first hope of his calling, that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that we would know his incomparably great power. That's Paul's prayer for us, that we would have revelation. And then we moved into um, a a summary statement of Paul's salvation theology. And I know we've spent a couple of weeks on this, and I'm going to just touch on it this morning. Um, So, I'll read it. (coughs) <coughs> chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience I'm going to stop there a second what he's talking about is he's talking about that which is natural to man today I'm going to say this isn't what is natural to man from God's original design but what is natural is the way that people live in the world today and that takes a variety of different forms and one of the predominant forms is one of self-centeredness that we have a whole bunch of little kings running around and uh and trying to establish their own kingdom and it's a kingdom without borders right so the wars we fight today are all borderless wars And they're about these kings, that there are those who walk according to the course of this world. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So Paul's saying, yep, me too. I wish I could be different, but that's the truth. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, with Christ. By grace, you have been saved." That's the, the most powerful statement that I can think of, certainly in the New Testament, maybe in all of the Bible. "By grace you have been saved." It's telling us something about God and His kindness, His intent towards us and his purpose. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we have an inheritance. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So this is all about God blessing us. Why would he do that? Because that's who he is. You know? Um, that's who God is, and it's we want to know that. And then there's this statement that is um, absolutely amazing. For by grace you have been saved through faith. We're going to talk about through faith this morning. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So there's a, a reason um, why God pours out his grace upon us, why he saves us. And it has to do with why he created us. God did not create us for destruction. He created us um, to as, out of who he is, poured his life into us, actually breathed his life into us, such that we actually have some of the communicable attributes of God. Not that we are God, or gods, but that um, we are animated by the very life of God. And we have personhood in that. Paul talked about that in Acts chapter 17, when he was talking about all of the gods in the world. And I'm going to go to Acts chapter 17 real quick, just because I don't want to reference something and not not take it to ground <clears throat> so when paul was uh as part of his journeys um he ended up going uh, we understand through macedonia he ended up in thessalonica so he went to philippi in macedonia and then he went from there to thessalonica he had to leave thessalonica uh pretty much under duress of course paul had to leave every place under duress um, because when he spoke the truth Um, he oftentimes met extreme opposition people that that truth threatened their kingdom right and so um, paul had was driven out of town on a rail but he left some folks behind in thessalonica and he ends up on his way to corinth in athens And so you read about this in acts chapter 17 and you get to verse 22 it talks about while he's there in athens he's not going to shut up Paul's not one to do that. He's a—he's a little guy in stature. He's not real tall. He's not like Arnold Schwarzenegger, big beefy dude. Uh, he's very. Um, Woody, Allen. pardon? He's Woody, Allen. he's Woody Allen. Yes, good good description. He's—he's not—he's a lawyer. He's not uh, a weightlifter, right? And that he, when you look at him, you don't look on him as a powerful man. But when he speaks, he blows you back with the things that he's saying. Not because his words are powerful, but because they're the words of God. And so, and he has the courage because of his calling. He's being faithful to that which God has called him to do to speak the word of truth. So we read in verse twenty-two. So, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. So this big amphitheater thing. Um, And that takes a lot of chutzpah to get there and do that anyway. And he said, Men of Athens, I observed that you were very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So they had all sorts of gods. They were very religious, a lot like our world today. We're very religious people. Even people would say that they have no religion. They practice religion. Atheism is a form of religion. Science science is a form of religion. You have basic premises that you accept on faith, right? Um, You have specific outcomes that you uh, expect and hope on, right? So in in many senses, uh, or in many respects, we are all religious people, and we have lots of gods, right? And and In our uh, Friday night study, um, we actually had a party this last week, and in my pocket here I have two of the Nerf, uh, <laughs> Nerf missiles that as the, the party was progressing and erupted into joy and all of a sudden Daniel and David are staging a, a shootout throughout my house um, well they lost some of their, their ammo so this is part of the ammo Nerf, Nerf missile um, No one was hurt seriously No one was hurt, it was all Nerf uh, however it was, it was quite fun and, and the rest of us were laughing and giggling and having a great time and um, in the course of that Mitch Jesse turned to me and he said so um, when someone says uh, or he asked the question he says so is the God of Islam and is the God of Judaism the same God as the God of the Christians right and I, and I read this passage there, there are lots of gods mm-hmm. is that the God Right. So that's a really good question, because I work with uh, people who are uh, Muslim. I work with people who are Jewish. I work with people who are scientists. I work with people who have all of these different religions. Right. And I read this and I'm thinking this is exactly where Paul was standing to an unknown God. I want to make sure we don't miss him. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you: the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. The very life that we have is God breathed, it is breathed into us. <coughs> And he made from one man every nation, every ethnos, every Gentile, of mankind, to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So he's talking about general revelation here. God can be known through his creation. For in him we live and move and exist, and even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. So he turns their own language back onto him, that's a great lawyer, right? Um, Claiming that we are children of God, but not just a God, but the God, the true God. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So what he's saying there sum it up, is that we know that he is a true God through his Son. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When we look at who Christ is and what he did, and we only have a portion of the record, but we have written for us that which the eyewitnesses saw, that which they touched, that's exactly what John says, he said, I saw it with my eyes. I touched him with my hands. I ate dinner with him. And that revelation of the true God is given to us in his son, which we read about. And we, we understand that um, that relationship, that knowing God, being joined to him, In unity is what he created us for. He blessed us such that we could be in communion with him and that we could express his goodness in his creation. In other words, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's what that means that we would know Christ in such an intimate way that we would be an imitator of him. And that in doing that, we would return to that which was the original design and intent of God, that which he purposed from before the foundation of the world. That we would actually work out the good works of God. And we understand that that's not where we were but that we get there by grace. By grace, you have been saved. And then he makes this statement, through faith. What does that mean? What does it mean through faith? What does that mean to you today? Reliance. Pardon? It's reliance. Reliance. So, so uh, trust. So I used to... Uh, give the example of reliance of uh, a mountain climber, right, where you've got your uh, protective gear on and usually you have somebody on what they call belay, right? So you have someone that you trust that if you make a mistake and you slip, um, they're going to arrest your fall within a period of time that allows you to not yank out your protective gear. Right? So you've got your piton in and your uh, strapped in and connected to these things but if you fall with enough force it's going to rip that thing loose so you have someone that is going to arrest your fall even if you're hanging there dangling in space such that you don't care out your protective gear that's someone you trust right? so that's an aspect of faith what are some other aspects of but faith? in that metaphor uh, what, which is the which part is the same and which part is the true which part is the? In that metaphor, the the ballet. Right. What's the through and what's the by? By grace through faith. So, is the rope? Road... So by grace, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna read this without the through faith. For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves; it is the gift of God. So we understand that grace is God's unmerited favor. It has nothing to do with you. You don't bring anything to the party. When it comes to your salvation. That's what I read there. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with God. Unless you don't accept. Through faith. Right. By grace, through faith. In other so words, you need climber, to rely upon that. Right, so your rock climber could say, no, that person isn't going to grab a time or doesn't have enough weight. I don't believe them. Mm-hmm. And so you would not take advantage... Right. Which is just, you know... Sorry. Right. And, and that's what they call pre Yeah. Right? And that you don't have anybody on belay. You don't have anybody that you trust. You trust in your skill alone. But what I read here is if you're saved, it has nothing to do with you and your skill. It has everything to do with God. Yeah, if you, but you can actively resist, it seems... It seems that you could actively resist, right? right? But what is... So, so many times people get drilled in on this, oh, we can actively resist. What does it mean if we're not actively resisting, we don't want to actively resist, we actually want to throw ourselves all in? How do we do that? How do we rely on God? How do we, as it says in, in Hebrews chapter 11, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, Right? or the substance so how do we make it such that it's more than just here but it actually translates into the way that I live it becomes substantive right It it is in fact um, as if you had received it it is assurance so it's the mountain climber letting go to test the belay ah but we're not to test God yeah so so When you're first training to climb, right, and you go to a rock wall at REI, um, and you've got someone on belay, and at some point, they want you to experience what it's like to have a fall arrested. So they're going to cause you to fail, right? And they're going to tell you in advance, well, by the way, you're going to fail. And when you feel that acceleration, it's like your heart, I, I don't care who you are, even knowing that you've got someone on belay, your heart races, and the adrenaline kicks in. Um, but that's part of learning, right? Now, when you get to El Capitan, you're not going to be learning. You're going to be actually relying upon your partner in that climb. I mean, there's, there's some free climb that, right? And, and people die, right? So... Um, I think there is, in as your faith is developing, there are trials that are set up, tests, to help build your faith, so that you can know that that which I hope for, that which is promised, I'm now part of the promise. And that's the next section that Paul's going to go into. Who is part of the promise? That promise, that which I hope for, it is as if I've already received it. It is so much a part of my life, it's substantive. It's not just that which I mentally give assent to. It is an actual unity with God himself. So grace is totally on God. Mm -hmm. Um, As Alex is pointing out, I suppose we could doubt it, but that's kind of on us. Well, doubt is actually part of faith. In other words, if you had no doubt, where is your faith? Well, and James makes it seem like it's just normal. Consider it all joy, my brother, when you encounter not if, but when, knowing that the testing of your faith will make you a better Baptist. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. sorry. That's, that's wrong translation. Yeah. Newly inspired translation. Yeah. Isn't it uh, after testing the faith that you receive some of the blessings and, and that is proof yes. of God's uh, caring for you. Yes, that's exactly what he says in his, in his uh, core theological message. That in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, right, that active state of standing in faith, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we want to unpack a promise. We want to understand who the Holy Spirit is an act of God. Again, it's part of that we are saved by grace. Um, so it's God's work, even in the Spirit. Um, but that 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 actually is a pledge. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. So there's there is. In, in a trial, when we come through the trial, and we recognize, wow, that was not of me. That was totally of God. He had my back. Um, and that causes us, one, to be encouraged in our faith, right? But it's also part of that blessing that we're receiving that it's part of that promise. You know, if I got you here in this little thing on this small test wall at REI, guess what? I got you in the big club. I got you in the real mountain. The one that is all about life and death. That's that's what God's saying. I got your back. And I'm going to give you little, little assurances. That the promise is for you. That this promise that was given to Abraham is the same promise that you have. This promise is for you. And that's, that's what I read here. What happens is, in faith, it, it is substantive. It isn't just a mental game I play. It actually impacts how I live and how I breathe. It's a conviction of things not seen. I'm convinced. And that's what Paul says in You're Philippians. In that conviction yep. James says. Pardon? But you have to grow in that conviction. We do have to to grow in that conviction. And and that's why when I'm in that place, and I shared this a few weeks back, when I'm in that place, the great storms of life, right, when the wind is blowing, the rain is coming, and it's turning into sleet and ice and, you know, uh, it can rip you apart, right? The great storms of life, where do I go? I go to Romans chapter 8. And I have my little margin note here, verses uh, 28 through 39. I wrote, shelter from the storm. God is for us. And then I have a little sub-note here under that. So uh, in 831 it says, God is for us, and I put Ephesians 1.4. 832, God gives us all things. At the lowest point in my life, all of the things that were true about me, God knew. He loves us more than we can know. And that's why Paul can go on and say in verse 38, For I am convinced, right, it's the conviction that this is true. It's what it says in Hebrews. Conviction of things not seen. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord nor any other created thing and what I will tell you is there is only one who who is uncreated and it's in his name Yahweh the one who is self-existent who is the creator of all things so that means our enemy no matter how great is a created thing and Paul is convinced that nothing, and he enumerates some of them that are very significant, right? Angels, death, principalities, you know, powers, all of these things, which he's going to also speak about in Ephesians, none of that can separate us from the love of God. That's who he is. That's what he's about. That's what faith is. It's having Uh, an assurance and a conviction that is not just about understanding truth, but actually being joined to the truth. It's about a unity with God. So when it says here in Ephesians that for by grace you have been saved through faith, that faith is that unity, that being joined together with God. And that's why, and I'll blow it up a little bit here so that people can read this. Let me see if I do this. Yep, that's not what I want to do. Okay, so let me bring it up again. Okay. This has to do with um, not just us, but all that follow Christ. I'll read it to you. I could blow it up, but then it would change things. Imagine a church in which people knew they were bound to Jesus Christ, that they're in Christ, that they're in union with him, that they lived in union with him, reflecting his death and resurrection, such that his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection, because that's what the Bible tells us. And that's what Bob's going to be doing next Sunday is a testimony for everybody in the church. Right? He's given his testimony that he is buried with Christ in Christ's death for us. And he is raised to new life, eternal life, in Christ. Right? That is the church that we are reflecting his death and resurrection. And conscious of Our new creation by God, we live productive lives. That's what faith is. That is saved by grace through faith. It actually changes us. And what we need to understand is the nature of the promise that we have, that it's not limited. You know, when I read that passage out of Isaiah, who was Isaiah writing to? Who, who do you, He was writing to the, to the remnant, actually, because he actually was talking about that time where the Assyrians had already conquered the northern kingdom, the time when Judah would have been uh, taken off in bondage. We know that because when we look at the second half of Isaiah, he clearly states exactly what would happen and that they shouldn't be discouraged. In fact, even names by name, the Persian king that would allow them to go back and to Jerusalem and rebuild right <coughs> so what he was talking about he was writing to that people that had received the promise but he also reveals that it's not just for them it's actually for the whole world that's what's going on next and I'm going to read it because I'm out of time which I always run out of time I'm sorry about that So we are saved by grace through faith and that it's for doing the work of God. That we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let me just read through the end of chapter 2. Therefore, remember, this is one of the few imperatives in uh, in Ephesians. He's he's commanding us, remember, remember, that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, so he's given a little bit of qualification there, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. We were aliens, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, and I need to unpack that for you, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace of peace and might reconcile them both in one body to god through the cross having put to death the enmity that which separates and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the father so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of, a, of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And that's just so rich, and we need to unpack that, and I don't have time. But one thing I do want to point out Where we were before Christ is we were not part of any promise. We could take no pride in our heritage, right? Just by birth, we had no promise as part of our nature. We had no hope and were without God in the world. I came to understand that really keenly when I was 17 years old and I'd been out on the street living on my own. And a guy took three shots at me with a shotgun. And I cried out to God because I knew every bit of that was true. I had no hope, and I was without God in the world. It was dark and empty, and that is the nature of how it is apart from God. But he came to bring light. Remember what it says in Isaiah? Let me just read that. This is where I'll end should have kept my thumb in it. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the the nation, nations, ethnos. You shall increase their gladness they will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil for you shall break the yoke of the burden and the staff on their shoulders the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloaked rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire for a child will be born to us a son will be given and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God Eternal Father Prince of Peace there will be no end of the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That's where I was. By grace, I've been saved. Let's go ahead and, and uh, reflect on our faith as we close in prayer. Lord, um it is my desire as I read through your word and uh, I read it aloud multiple times that we would understand the, the substance of faith, that what it means to be truly bound to you, uh, to be in union with you, to be in you in such a profound way that it changes us, that it changes us in such that we can be imitators of you. We can't imitate that which we don't know, and we need to know you experientially in order to um, actually be transformed in this way. And that's what we ask for, Lord. I ask that you would transform experientially. Everybody that's here, everybody that is going to hear Bob this morning, Lord, those that hear your gospel bring out um, this day, that they would come to know you personally, experientially, and that they would be transformed And that it wouldn't just be this day, but it would be um, for working out that which you designed for us to do, that we are created in good work, or created for good works, and are your workmanship. Lord, uh, it's just so rich. I ask that blessing upon everybody here. And I ask that as we ponder our faith and how much is just mental assent and how much is actually being in union with you, trusting you, reliant, um, assured, convinced. Lord, um, as we wrestle through that this week i ask that you would continue to pour out your blessing upon us we're going to have lots of opportunity with family and friends don't let us lose sight of that which is the most important which is the life that you've given us and the life that you desire for us to share lord we thank you for all of these things we thank you for your protection of us your provision for us and your incredible service that you would come into this world to save us that you would uh, subject yourself and be humble and lowly and being found as a man um, being obedient even to the point of death on a cross lord we just we can't even begin to thank you for that and uh lord i just ask you be with bob this morning and you be with us all thank you lord jesus for this in your name amen merry christmas